0: Okay, we are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. We start tonight as we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, which I believe is nobody, except for the author. Oh, and okay, we say welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Tonight, we welcome the author, Doug Wilson, his book, the Bird, The Life and Legacy of Mark Fidrich, published by Thomas Dunn Books, St. Martin's Press. Doug, welcome to the clubhouse. Thanks for inviting me. And uh, I think the first thing we should let everybody know is that Doug is a fellow uh, Sabre member, for those of us who were Sabre members here, and I know there are many listening to the podcast who are. But beyond that, uh, if you could just let us know what you do as, uh, as your day job, I think people would find this fascinating.
1: My day job, I'm an ophthalmologist.
0: <laughs> All right. So the first question is, how does an ophthalmologist how does how does this project come
1: about? Uh, well, I, I always loved baseball. I grew up in the '60s and '70s, uh, checking box scores every day, and and uh, you know, I always liked to write. And when I decided I wanted to write books, I decided I wanted to write about the good things. You know, you hear enough about the scandals and the steroids and stuff, and So I wanted to write a a feel-good baseball book. And and in my lifetime, I can't really remember any episode that made so many people feel so good as the phenomenon of when Mark Pidgett was doing his thing in Detroit.
0: And before we get into uh, Mark, which I remember as as a teenager, vividly, uh, but there are a few writers in the audience tonight just so now, how does an ophthalmologist who wants to write this story about this guy, how does that become a book with a, one, a major publisher?
1: Um, well, this is my second book. I, I wrote a, another book a couple years ago. It was published by a, a, a small academic press that was about Fred Hutchinson, who uh, was manager of the Reds in the 60s. And uh, I was working on the, the book with the bird, and the, the first book sold about 400 copies, and and I, I knew this was a good story, and I was having fun doing it. And I figured, you know, so another four hundred copies, I'll be happy. But <laughs> I, I, I sent some queries off to some agents, and uh, one of them sent wrote me back uh, or emailed me back about four hours after I sent out the first query. And uh, thought it was a good idea to take to a major publisher, and uh, and they liked it, and so that's how it worked out. That's great. That's great.
0: Alright, well now the bird who he's one of those those rare I don't want to say rare birds, but rare people <laughs> who everybody loved. I mean it didn't it didn't matter. there's not too many guys who who no matter who you root for, you root for that guy. And he was one of those guys. And so if you could start maybe with he came from Northboro Mass and just kinda give us a little background on, on his start that that way.
1: Well, he he grew up in a small town, uh, about 10,000. It's about 30 miles west of Boston. And uh, he was just uh, uh, one of those hyperactive little boys that was always had a big smile on his face, always talking, always into something. He had trouble in school, first and second grade, because of that. It's hard to stay in his seat. Um, But he just had the type of personality that everybody liked him, Uh, his neighbors, teachers... Um, He just was outgoing and and everybody liked the guy. But he was a, a good baseball player right from the start. His father knew a lot about baseball and really taught him well. And some of the things, talking to guys that played Little League Baseball with him, some of the things that his dad had him do, his dad was a smart guy. He was a school teacher, And he knew he had this hyperactive little boy. And so he gave him certain things to do on the baseball field to keep him focused. And one of them was as soon as he went out on the mound to get down and smooth it out with his hand to make his own hole where he landed, and and to talk to himself to remind himself of the situation. You know, guy on first, one out if it's hit to me, and that stuff he did when he was nine, ten years old. And his buddies in little league didn't think that much about it. That, that that's just Mark being Mark. But he kept doing it, and then when he was doing it in front of fifty thousand people in the majors, <laughs> people went nuts about it. No,
0: and when did he? When did Mark Fidrich get the name the Bird? Was
1: he was he a kid,
0: or it was not until? No, later? that was
1: uh, his his first day of practice in the minor leagues. Uh, he he was a real good pitcher in high school and American Legion, but uh, Massachusetts has a pretty short season, and back then scouting wasn't what it was today, and he kind of flew under the radar. He was a tenth round draft pick, and uh, he was assigned to Bristol, the low level minor uh, rookie league team, and and. Uh, One of the assistant coaches, Jeff Hogan, who uh, was a former shortstop in the Tiger system, but uh, he was there first day of practice. He said he he looks, and there's Mark running all over the field, the blonde curly hair coming out under his hat, squawking, flapping his arms, and he said he, he looks like Big Bird, and the name stuck. And then, so now throughout the minor leagues,
0: He was a 10th-round pick, as you said, so certainly not any fantastic prospect. Does he start to become a prospect as he moves along, or it was
1: still a complete shock? No, he was good right from the start. And uh, I I talked to Jeff Hogan, and he said the Tigers had no idea what we were getting with this guy. But right from the start, they could see he had great control. He had good velocity, and he really had a ton of movement. And uh, in the rookie league, he just blew guys away. He was started out as a reliever, he was their closer, but uh, not too many guys hit him very hard, and he, he was, after that season, they knew he was a definite prospect.
0: And speaking of, uh, of movement on his pitches, which I think we can now get, get to this, so now it's the summer of 1976, and I guess the game that really made him this crazy national figure is the Monday Night Baseball game, is that, is that correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so if you could just...
1: Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's really the uh, seminal moment in the whole bird phenomenon. You know, because back then they only had two national televised games a week, the Monday night game and the Saturday night game, and and everybody watched those. And uh, he had been doing good in Detroit. He pitched a two-hitter his first game out. And fans were getting behind him. The first game, they were maybe 14,000 in the stands. The next game, 25. The next game, 37. And, and so in Detroit, he was already uh, an icon. Every game was a party. Uh, but everybody else had just been hearing rumors and stories of this funny guy that does some strange things out there. But nobody really knew the whole thing. And so, so that Monday night game, everything just, just came together perfect. They... They were playing the Yankees. The Yankees were in first place. They showed up, but it was a, a Monday night midseason game in Detroit. Detroit's in fifth place. They're going nowhere. The guys show up, and there's 50,000 people, uh, another 10,000 in the streets that couldn't get in. And you know, they said, what's going on here? And, and immediately from the first pitch, the fans are on their feet screaming like crazy, go, bird, go. And, and they see this guy. He's, he's on his hands and knees. He's talking to the ball. He's running around the field, shaking hands, shaking his fist at guys after routine plays, sprinting on and off the field. And uh, he's all the, the announcers. Bob Euchre was doing the color, and that was all they could talk about. And, and he was just mowing the Yankees down. The whole game took an hour and 54 minutes. You know, so less than seventh, eighth, ninth innings takes nowadays. But uh, the Yankees got one guy at a second base. He didn't walk a batter. And, and, again, the movement, you watch the, the videos of that, is just unbelievable. I mean, everything's right at the knees, and then the bottom falls out of it. And so he takes them out the ninth inning, and, and the place is going crazy. He sets the Yankees down. Everybody goes in the clubhouse. Again, it's a midseason game. doesn't mean anything. But nobody goes home. You know, for ten minutes, everybody's screaming and yelling, and, and they had to send a guard in there to get him. He was already undressed. You know, the guard said, "You got to come out of here. Nobody's going home." And so it's kind of funny he, he was doing his interview in his socks. He's out <laughs> on the field, but you know, when he came out of the dugout, the place just exploded. And and a lot of the guys said they'd never seen a, a midseason curtain call before, unless you know, unless it was your sixty-first home run or something like that. You know, a curtain call after a midseason game. And the next day, he was the most famous guy in America. Everybody knew about the bird. Every newspaper in the country sent somebody out to talk to him to find out about this guy. Is he a nut? What's the deal? And, and after that, it just, just took off.
0: Well, you described that, the, the Monday night game against the Yankees, perfectly. In fact, when I was preparing for tonight, I went back and I found the video, which little plug for those of you who want to look at the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse Facebook page it's it's posted there it's the last out of the game it's and then it takes the you through to it's the this curtain call that you talk about and it does give you goosebumps i mean his innocence and when he just comes finally when he comes out and he's just shaking hands with the security guards and his emotion when he goes back in the dugout and they pull him out again he was like an innocent rock star at that point. Really, I mean, it was it was amazing to watch and very emotional.
1: And I think that's what really touched touched the nerve was was you could feel the the enthusiasm, the the exuberance coming through. And then and and really the the setting was important because this was the first year of free agency. You know, people the the owners locked the players out back uh, the first uh, spring training and so the fans were sick of hearing about money, sick of hearing about greedy players and agents and, and along comes a guy out of nowhere who's making the, the next week they found out he's making the major league minimum 16000 a year and he's happy about it he said this is the most I've ever made in my life two years ago I was making two bucks an hour at a gas station so he, he was happy doing that and, and the whole package w- was just the perfect thing at the perfect time and I know he didn't have an agent at that point. Did he ever have an agent? Tom, he he got an agent about 1981 in his oh, last so season. Been. But yeah, a- after the the year, you know, he he told people, yeah, you know, and there were agents talking to him that said, you know, next year we can get you a million dollars, and which was a, a lot of money back then. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> like today. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, he kept telling all the reporters he said I, I don't need an agent I know my own value he had an agent for uh, commercials and stuff like that but not for his contract and so sure enough at the end of the season Jim Campbell the general manager he, he says who's going to help you and he goes well my dad and so they fly in his dad they walk in Campbell's office uh, 30 minutes later they shake hands and walk out and he signed his contract and, and, and he really could have held the team up uh, I mean uh, a few years earlier Vida Blue had had a great year with the A's held out half the season and ruined the whole season. You know, Fred Lynn, the year before, been rookie of the year, held out and didn't have a good year. You know, there's, the Tigers were in such a situation they couldn't have turned him down. I mean, he he could have really stuck the team up, but he signed for 55000 for the next year and, and he told everybody, you know, I'm happy. You know, this is all I need. How much more money do you need? And, and that was another thing. He, he lived so simply and... Uh, you know, he didn't need a lot of money the, the, the week after his big game People magazine sent a team to his apartment to interview him and he had he had towels hanging over the windows for curtains he had a mattress his mattress was on the floor he didn't have a bed he didn't have a TV, he didn't have a telephone and he told him, uh, he goes yeah I'm generally clean but sometimes I let my dishes stack up but they don't stack up high because I only got four and, you know so that was all he needed
0: now, did you, uh, from your research, did you find that he started to change at all,
1: uh, or he did not change? He never really did, and that's what's neat. Even years later, you talked to guys who knew him in high school, and they said he's one guy who, you know, when you saw him when he was 50, he acted exactly like he did when he was 12, you know, for good or bad. But he never changed. And some of his friends during the, uh, said during the 1976 baseball season, he was oblivious initially to the impact he was having on people. His first three or four games, you know, he's the rookie trying to get guys out, trying to stay in the major leagues. He didn't know if he's going to be here next week. And so all the stuff he was doing on the mound, he was totally focused uh, on the batter, and he didn't realize what people were were thinking while he was doing that. And, of course, after a doll exploded, you know, he couldn't go anywhere. Every, every time he popped out of his apartment... He was mobbed, but, but then again, he still loved it. He was just the kind of guy, uh, one of his teammates said, you know, he could have had a 30-minute conversation with a fire hydrant. You know, he was just the kind of guy who liked people, liked interacting with other people. He could talk to somebody five minutes and make them feel like they were his best friend. And, you know, he, he enjoyed it. And so he never really changed. And I know you spoke to many uh, ball players in your research
0: one of whom was Rusty Staub, who played was a teammate of his. If you could just talk a little bit about uh, Rusty Staub's comments, as well as any of the other ball players that
1: you were able to track down who spoke about him. Um, yeah, I, I didn't actually get a hold of Rusty Staub. Oh, uh, he had done several interviews um, on on the topic of Mark Fidrych, and I used those as sources, but I couldn't quite connect with him. But uh, uh, one of the the big ones, one well, of the most enjoyable ones, was I, I got a hold of Ralph Houk and. Uh, he was living in Winter Haven, Florida. He was ninety-three. Uh, unfortunately, he died about a month after I talked to him. But but I called him and I told him what I was doing the book on, and he just started laughing. He said, "I would love to talk. I love talking about Mark Fidrych. He was one of my all-time favorites." And, and he talked my ear off. I mean, we talked for about an hour. You know, initially talking to him, I felt like I was eight years old. You know, he was the guy who told Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris what to do, and they did it. You know, <laughs> how do you talk to a guy like that? But but, yeah, I mean, he, he loved Mark and He said when he showed up at spring training the first time he saw him, he said there was no question about his talent. I mean, he had, he had a major league arm control and movement. There was no doubt that he was going to help the team that year. But also, he said running around camp, squawking, talking nonstop, you couldn't help but like the guy, his personality. But early in the year, he actually had him move down to the end of the dugout. When he wasn't pitching, he was yapping so much <laughs> that Hawk said he was driving him crazy. He couldn't think. So he had him move, move down to the end of the dugout. And we're going to
0: get to our uh, – que- I want to leave enough time for questions from our Tiger fans as well as others who are here. Uh, but if we could just move along for now to – now there's uh, some heartbreak with him as far as the injuries go. And if you could just talk about how – I guess to start with the first injury –
1: yeah, it was just a, a freak accident. He was just doing what he did every day of his life on the baseball field, just having a blast, running around, having fun. And he was standing in the outfield shagging flies with the pitchers. You know, fly ball comes. Uh, you want that? Now you take it. And he runs over there and kind of did a uh, jump for it, and he came down awkward. And as soon as he came down, he started limping. He knew something was wrong with his knee and... Uh, Tried to run it off, but it just swelled up. Couldn't get better. Turned out he had a torn cartilage in his knee, and so they sent him back to Detroit. This was the spring training of '77, the next year, and he had surgery. He had to miss the first two months of the season. And when he came back, though, they started him back on a spring training regimen to get his arm in shape, and he was throwing better than ever. He, he was six and two. Made the All Star team, his ERA was 180, so he was pitching better his second year than his first year. And then they, they were in Baltimore, uh, 4th of July, and the sixth inning, uh, he threw a pitch, and, and all of a sudden there's nothing on the ball. And I talked to his catcher, Bruce Kim, and he said, you know, after that, they got like five or six straight hits, and he said, that's the first time there was nothing on the ball. And he said, I could tell immediately something was wrong. And after the game, Mark said, Bruce, my arm's killing me. And he you know, said, you, you need to tell somebody. But he, he had that kind of blue-collar work ethic. You know, he didn't want them to think he was uh, goofing off and he was such a competitor. And so he tried to pitch a couple more times but just couldn't throw. And, and essentially his career was over then. You know, they didn't know it at the time, but he was never the way he was before. And
0: then when he tries to make a comeback later on, there's a, a special game with the Pawtucket Red Sox and uh, Dave Rigetti. If you could just talk a little bit about that game.
1: Yeah, he, he had one more magic moment, and uh, yeah, he tried three or four years with the Tigers, and they finally cut him loose, and by then, Ralph Hawk had moved on and was managing the Red Sox, and so they signed Mark to a minor league contract and said, you know, go at your own schedule. If you make it, great, and so he was at Pawtucket, the AAA team, and you know, some games it was good, some games he wasn't. He was getting by with brains and wit and will. Didn't have anything in his arm, but there was one game where uh, Rigetti had been the rookie of the year with the Yankees the year before. He was struggling a little bit the next year, so they sent him down to their triple-A team, Columbus, uh, just for two or three starts to get the kinks worked out. And lo and behold, the, the matched up in Pawtucket was the bird against Dave Rigetti. And so... As soon as they knew the matchup, the media fanned the flames. They sent out things. The 150 media people were, were at the game. The stadium there seats about 6,000, and they, they filled it, it about 9,500. They roped off areas of the outfield, areas of foul ground where guys were in, standing room only. The place was packed. Everybody's going crazy. And uh, at the beginning of the game, Rigetti obviously wanted to get back to the majors. He comes out throwing smoke. He struck out like six of the first seven batters. Mark's giving up some hits, but staying in there, getting lucky. Rigetti left after the sixth inning with a two-run lead, and he was happy. The Bird's trying to finish up the game. He hadn't had a complete game in about two years, but in the seventh inning, there were two guys on base and the manager had his foot on the top step. He was ready to come out and take him out. And the assistant manager says, well, you know, we got this big crowd. They came to see the bird. Let's give him one more batter. So the next guy rips a shot to the outfield. The outfielder comes up, guns the guy down at the plate. The batter tries to advance. The catcher throws him out. So he gets a double play, gets him out of the inning. So that buys him two more innings. The, The Pawtucket team comes back. They're inspired. They they get a couple more runs. So he comes out of the dugout for the ninth inning with a two-run lead. Everybody's on their feet screaming and yelling. And he gets a couple of outs, and then Butch Hobson comes to the plate, who was a good hitter himself and had a couple of good years. And, and he gets two strikes on Hobson, breaks off a perfect slider in low outside corner. Hobson swings and misses, and the whole place explodes. And, and, again, a standing ovation for 15, 20 minutes. He comes out, and, and everybody's going crazy, and it, that was really his last hurrah. And then, when he's done playing, what does he go on, and, and what's his post-playing life like? Well, one of the things that uh, the reporters thought he was crazy, when he was a rookie, he was on top of the world, they would say, you know, what are you going to do with your life? And he said, I want to drive trucks and work on a farm. And now, you know, they thought he was a nut. But that's really what he wanted, and... He, he never made a ton of money in baseball he missed the big money by about two years but but he took the money that he made from baseball and he bought uh, some land in his hometown and he raised pigs uh, raised uh, cows and and he bought a big dump truck and he was a blue collar worker he'd get up at five in the morning drive uh, asphalt gravel work on construction projects and uh, you know, people would see him on the road. You had Mark Fidgerts had a picture of a bird on the side of his truck, the Mark Fidgerts Trucking Company. And, right. you know, and he, and he had a blast doing it, just like he did in baseball. You know, he everything he did, he had fun.
0: And then the the very sad ending, if you could just talk about that. And, yeah,
1: and it just kind of, you know, came out of the nowhere. One day he got up, he was working on his truck, he was underneath it, and... Uh, they found him there. Later, the coroner said part of his clothes got caught in a rotary part of the engine, and uh, kind of came out of nowhere. It's at Fifty-four. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, it's it's <laughs> quite a. Uh, other than that, it's an amazing, quite yeah. a life. And uh, if we can now, we'll open it up to any questions from. Uh,
1: How many innings did he
0: throw? What's his injury in
2: '78
1: from possible uh, that That's a good question, and that—that's uh, basically answered. Nobody knows. Uh, he, he threw 250 innings his rookie year, and one thing to remember is he didn't start a game till May 18th. So he threw those 250 innings over three fourths of the season. And another important thing is, growing up in Massachusetts, he played short seasons all the time. And he was a reliever his first year in the minors. So that was a big increase in the workload. But, you know, before we throw Ralph Hawk under the bus, guys threw a lot of innings back then. Yeah, oh yeah. 250 innings was pedestrian for a lot of starters. Um, Vita Blue threw 320 as a 20-year-old. Uh, Burt Blyle even had back-to-back 300 inning seasons of 21-22. Mickey Lolich threw 360 innings one year. And so starters expected to throw, and... And one thing that Ralph Hop ha- ha- told me, he said, you know, lost in all the the bird, annex, the fun, he was an incredible competitor. And he said, if we got to the seventh inning with him, the game was over. He just had the ability to turn up the, the heat. And uh, in fact, it looked up in 24 ninth innings that season, he gave up one earned run. So it's an ERA of 0.34. So nobody in the bullpen has got that. I right, said, so why would you take him out? So... You know, in hindsight, maybe, but, uh, you know, I asked a lot of guys, some guys felt like maybe in the next year he came back too soon from the injury. He didn't quite get his arm in shape. Um, One thing Ralph Hawk said was he thought his arm just went. You know, he he was such a competitor, he threw so hard, it just happened. You know, know, there's there's
2: a lot of similarities to the injuries to Dizzy Dean. You know, and Dizzy yeah. Dean's yeah. career and personality leg, was yeah. to the public was, was was very similar, and like his his year triple. I looked at his record today. Threw like 170 innings, mm-hmm. and then he, at age 20, mm-hmm. and then at age 21, he threw the 200. They had like 29 complete games, mm-hmm. but also people didn't walk and strike out nearly as much. he had yeah,
1: low pitch counts. So,
2: if you looked at his pitch counts, his complete games probably were under 100 pitches. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: yeah and that, that's a great point. He yeah. had one complete game victory through he threw 81 pitches. Yeah. Wow.
2: And you think of the cartilage, okay, that's certainly not related to his arm. And then, he was doing good the second year, but then, when the arm just went dead, that's, that's, it's almost like the one-hoshé just fell apart. That, you know, that it was maybe he came back too soon maybe it was all the sliders he threw you know but it was you know it's
1: just yeah, speculation yeah, you know yeah. that look at Steven Strasberg. yeah he couldn't be more micromanaged That's than right, that and yeah. what he last a month so yeah. pitchers it's an unnatural thing to throw uh, something 90 miles an hour yeah. it was like the, uh, the problem with is it
0: changed his motion yeah, yeah I mean, exactly you got hit with the, anything with Friedrich's motion I mean I lived in Europe for
1: most of the yeah. 70's and on, but I came back to New York, and I, I come from a baseball family. So we know all I have to do is say, "Ah," and it's, "Oh, well, this is Mark
2: Friedrich He does this sort of stuff." Like the first time I saw, I saw um, um, Pete Rose. And he did one of those ball chop things. And I hadn't been experienced in, in watching these foam fields, you know, that they were doing that. Yeah. All. all I had to do was look <laughs> at it and he said, yeah, that's
1: the you're playing baseball now. I mean, it, it, it was like that. And when I saw Friedrich for the first time, it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is Mark Friedrich. It was the bird. Everybody likes him, election, you know. So, but it was, he had a strange motion, too, didn't he? And, and, and one of his buddies that I talked to, a guy named Bobby Sykes, who mm-hmm. uh, was with him in Rookie Ball, and, and they were uh, real good friends, and, and he had come up the, the next year, and he said that he thought Mark's motion was different than what it had been as he remembered with him in Rookie Ball after his knee. It might have been. And that's what he thought. The problem
2: with Dean was he,
1: he was favoring
2: his toe, so instead of really know going down on it, he stressed his armboard to compensate. And it might have been the same thing with the cartilage, you know, if you can't really plan on the knee, then you compensate with, with, with the torn mm-hmm. arm.
1: And and the sad thing was it, it was a torn rotator cuff. They didn't have a way to diagnose yeah. it back then. Ever sore arm back then they called tendonitis. And so he, he went six years doing everything that anybody all kinds of hokey regimens even tried hypnosis he tried everything uh, but it was all with a torn rotator path after he retired he went down to James Andrews was starting out to do arthroscopy and that was when they diagnosed it and fixed it but by then it was too late
0: Who else did you speak to? Uh, I mean, it's fascinating to listen to these stories of Ralph
1: Hauck and these other guys that you spoke to. Were there any other guys that Um, stuck uh, out? Yeah, talked to Dave Rosema. Uh, He was a pitcher with the Tigers. He was real good friends with Mark. And uh, uh, Frank McCormick, who was another pitcher, was good friends with him. Uh, Gary Sutherland was an infielder. Um, uh, Bruce Kim, who was his, his personal catcher. Bruce Kim had come up with him. Uh, just because one of the other catchers was on the disabled list. And Mark's first start, Ralph Hawk said, well, you caught him last year in AAA, well, you go. And, and they did so good, he thought, well, let's keep a good thing going. So he caught every one of Mark's starts. And, uh, uh, and I talked to several guys who were with him in the minor leagues who was trying when he was trying to make a comeback. And the, the one neat thing about everybody that everybody said was how much they all enjoyed playing with him. You, you would think a guy like that, you know, he's getting all the press, he's getting all the attention. There might be some jealousy, but they didn't talk to one single person. They all loved what he did. Who doesn't like playing in front of a sold-out crowd? And, and they, again, his personality, they knew he wasn't doing it to get the attention. He was being himself. And they said that's the way he was off the field. He would drive you nuts trying to keep up with him. He was all over the place. But you know they, they knew that was his personality and they enjoyed it. Yeah, I don't know if there's really been anyone else quite like that or yeah. since then really Ga um, yeah, sports and, and again a lot of people have asked that and you know I think one bad thing is we're jaded now as fans you know, somebody's girlfriend dies and they win a game, that's a great story. Next week you find out, well, maybe it's not a great story. We've been burned so many times, we're jaded. If a guy came by and did that nowadays, the first thing you'd think is, you know, he's just trying to do do it to get attention. And so I don't think fans will give themselves over to a guy like that now. So. Uh, it, it's unfortunate. We'll take
2: what you see with it. Bryce Harper. You know, people are all yeah. on Bryce Harper. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The kids is playing real hard. Everyone yeah.
0: keeps saying he's got to so go now. And he's like, no, let him go out there and be himself. And you know, yeah, year after. I don't think I, I, I was thinking about this today. I think today he
2: would be. Every analyst would basically be saying he's a distraction that he's doing this. and He needs to calm down. He's gonna. There's no way he would have even remotely the amount of success as far as you know people accepting his idiosyncrasies. That mm-hmm. no way.
1: Jewish? No. no, no, no. He was uh, Polish uh, his Polish. father's side. Friedrich. Yeah.
2: <laughs> following up, uh, part of the problem with Harper is he had a minor league reputation. No one's picking on Mike Trout, mm-hmm. so if you come up with this good, you know, good background, they're not going to be on you the same way. You have to present mm-hmm. yourself. You can't can't show up and just think you're better than anybody else. So
1: keep that opinion. And That's Fitzgerald. Yeah. yeah, and that's one of the things that people liked about him is this. right from his first start, he always gave credit to his teammates and, and the reporters would ask him, you know, the, the Tigers drew 13,000 to every game that he didn't pitch. They averaged 35,000 to <laughs> the games he did. And he would say, uh, yeah, but I'm only doing one-third of the work. What about hitting and defense? The fans are coming to see these guys and, you know, here's the teammates. These are the guys you need to talk to. And he was always throwing props to them. And uh, again, that's the guys like that.
2: No, again, going to the Dean, I grew up with Dean on radio and TV, and I, I thought he was a great announcer. Uh, the year that Yestromsky retired, which I forget what it was, I went to the Boston Baseball Writers' Dinner, and Fidrich was the keynote speaker. And if there's ever anything I wish I had on tape, it was that. It was completely extemporary. I'm yeah. sure he didn't give a thought to what he said. <laughs> it, uh, he was out, But it yeah. was wonderful. <laughs> it was pure baseball poetry. It was just, it was so from the heart, but it also showed, he, I remember he got into some very technical technical aspects, and then he sort of, but I really loved the technicalities because you could see what a smart baseball, Yeah, he, he really did have a, a good baseball was. mind. And then I was reading, uh, I, I'm sure you read it, it was a, uh, a Sports Illustrated feature from about 1999. I forget
1: who wrote it. Steve Russian did yeah, it. Steve a Russian. Bit, Yeah.
2: And it said, it, and I didn't know it, that he did not gig as an announcer, but he was so unrivaled yeah. as an announcer, he just...
1: Yeah, know, that, that, that's a famous story. They uh, When he was injured, they put him on Monday night game with Al Michaels, who has a history of being a little cantankerous with some of his co-hosts anyway. And so... Here's this guy who has no professional experience at all, and they thought, well, we'll just stick him in front of a microphone and his magic will come through. It was really unfair to Mark. He was totally unprepared. And and a, a couple of the episodes during the game, Michaels would ask him about this guy, and, and Mark being honest with him, who's he? I don't know. <laughs> Michaels was, you know, incredulous, you know, you've never heard of this guy? And he goes, uh, don't you keep up with that league? And he goes, I don't keep up with any league. And, you know, he didn't know a lot of the players he played against. And once the camera came on after a break, and Michaels is sitting there by himself, and all of a sudden Mark comes through the door and he goes, uh, where have you been? And Mark goes, I've uh, I had to go to the commode. (laughs) You know, I'm on air, he's saying that. So, you know, he wasn't the best uh, polished TV announcer. But, again, he was 22 years old at the time, too. So. you able to pick up his pitching philosophy? I checked his
2: stats before I came. The first thing I saw, 250 innings and then he struck out
1: 95 guys. Did he pitch for contact? Um, Yeah, he struck out a lot of guys in in high school, in American Legion ball, some games he he pitched no-hitters struck out 16 17 guys but in the minor leagues he he seemed to be really coachable he latched on to guys and they would teach him things and and uh, he made a point in one of a couple of articles that uh, some of the pitchers told him you know at this level you can't strike out everybody and you don't want to strike out everybody look at these guys behind you And, and if you look at his minor league stats his, he got better at each level. If he went from Class A, Class AA, A to Majors, every level up, he got better. And his walks went down at every level, and uh, and his strikeouts went down. But, yeah, he was pitching uh, to contact, and guys were beating it into the ground. And that, that's what helped him with the low pitch counts and complete games.
2: Uh, what was his personal life afterwards? Did he get married, children? He yeah,
1: he... Uh, he, he did, after he went back to his hometown, he met uh, his wife. He had actually gone to high school with her, but she was an honor student. They'd kind of run in separate crowds. They didn't uh, know each other that well, but they ran into each other uh, a few years after he got back, and they hit it off, and And uh, he, he had a, a real good family life. They had a daughter, and, uh, you know, a lot of guys in town, people would say, you know, I always see him walking through the store holding his daughter's hand, uh always showing up at her soccer games and stuff and he had a real good family life The the his wife's family owned a small diner one of the uh, old-fashioned diners and and on saturday mornings he would be in there helping busting the tables and stuff you know grandma's flipping hash in the back he's he's joking shaking everybody's hands yucking it up the daughter's yelling at him quit talking so much because she's getting behind busting tables too You know, that that was just what he did as a family every Saturday morning. Did you, for the book, were you able to speak to his wife or his family at all? Um, I I talked to his three sisters. He had a real close family growing up, and they were very helpful. I I wanted to be real sensitive to his wife, um, because that's a terrible thing to happen, and that's something you never get over. And I didn't want to be an unknown guy calling, and and so I, I... Wrote her a letter explaining what I was going to do, telling her I wasn't looking for for personal things. I wasn't digging for dirt. But just explained. I gave her my contact information, but it explained, you know, if you don't feel like talking, I totally understand. Because I didn't want to be pushy. Because, again, I, I can't imagine going through something like that and... and and so I, I wrote her another letter when the book was finished and then right before it came out just letting her know the progress and stuff but uh, I didn't actively pursue and I didn't want to I wanted to be sensitive to them and, and his sisters who you did speak with yeah. are they all in Massachusetts um, one lives uh, in Massachusetts and I flew up there and she was real nice showed me around town and showed me the, their old house their old ball fields and stuff got me in touch with his old baseball high school coach who showed me around and, Um, his other sisters, one lives in Florida and one lives in Tennessee. Was he the youngest? Um, He was the second oldest. He had an older sister, about two years older, and then uh, one sister was a year or two younger and then one was seven or eight years younger. But again, their their household was, uh, the sister said, what we saw on the mound in Detroit was exactly the way he was in our house every day of his life, uh, they, their their childhood was full of, of bumps and scrapes and broken bones and trips to the hospital with uh, Mark's accidents and, and things, but uh, they had a good time. Also, uh, uh, Just a minor thing, you
0: said the search team was in Bristol. Yeah. Was this Bristol,
1: Rhode Island, Bristol, uh, Tennessee? Bristol, Tennessee. So it was up in the mountains, which was kind of a funny story, too, because the, the locals there don't really speak the same language that they speak <laughs> of in Massachusetts. <laughs> so that kind of added to the culture shock of, of professional baseball. And my, my father played there too.
0: And Mark, he had a real uh, New England accent. Yeah, oh there. yeah, it was yeah. huge. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But one of the other things that is a good point that I want to mention that uh, I didn't realize how much i was doing the research was his relationship with jim leland and uh, leland was a young guy who would come up as a catcher uh, but got into management and he started at the bottom rung of the ladder in the tiger system and uh, he coached mark a couple years before he made the majors in the florida instructional league in the winter and then after mark hurt his arm they sent him to lakeland the class a to rehab and leland was the manager there and then a couple years later when Mark was trying to make it back to the majors, Leland was his manager in Triple-A, and they they had a very close relationship. They were they're real good friends.
2: He seemed to be attracted to catchers because Ralph well, yeah. was
1: also a catcher. Yeah, uh, a lot of catchers make good managers. They they know the game. Did he ever visit Bruce Kim in Norway Iowa Iowa? I don't know. He, he,
2: he's from that tiny yeah. town where Bonkers from. Yeah. Uh, hmm. uh, yeah. Town Frosty The town is a hundred people. Hmm. And Kim became coach.
1: Yeah, he he managed the Cubs one year, which was unfortunate because uh, <laughs> <laughs> he keep a job yeah, long with the Cubs. <laughs> but he runs a baseball academy and a scouting service back in uh, yeah, Indiana. Right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, he, he hadn't seen Mark uh, for quite a few years. He he flew out for the funeral. Mm.
2: Yeah. So was a great of and both very good any ideas on how
1: you teach someone to pitch the content? Because a lot of people don't um, understand what well, I, I it, It's hard and, and I, I gave a brave effort at coaching Little League and I'm not sure how you coach pitchers. Because um, some kids can do it and some unfortunately can't. I mean, there's, there's nine-year-olds that come up and they're throwing BBs and you can always take credit for that but probably they're going to do that for anybody they play for. So, yeah, but yeah, yeah, I guess it's a mindset to let them know they're not going to make a living throwing high heat. You keep the ball low. And, but sometimes you tell them to let guys hit it and they hit it over the fence. So, you know, I, I don't have any teaching teaching expertise. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're going to, uh, for now, we're going to end the
0: actual podcast. Doug will be signing books here. For those of you listening, you can pick up the book, The Bird. The Life and Legacy of Mark Fiddridge by Doug Wilson from Thomas Dunn Books, Saint Martin's Press, and it was a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much, Doug. Okay. Okay.